I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. We came, we saw, we kicked his ass. I am Conor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. I was born in 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shield. I am immortal. I suppose we have to register you as the lethal weapon. Your move, creep. What is your major malfunction, Nubnut? It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm gonna kick 100% of your ass. This town needs an enema. Who are you, then? Lying in the ointment, huh? A monkey in the wrench. Pain in the ass. Greed is good. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Huh? Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Hey, everybody! We're all gonna get late! Excellent! <laughs> good morning, Vietnam! Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. Now don't call me Shirley. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. You're close. Give them to me. Kiss my ass! Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. Inconceivable! I've got a little challenge for you, Sark. A new recruit. He's a tough case, but I want him treated in the usual manner. Train him for the games. Let him poop for a while. And blow him away. Game over, man. It's game over. Hello there, and welcome to episode 5 of every 80s movie ever made. Or Emem, if you're too busy blowing shit up and killing people in various violent ways. Episode 5. Jesus, never thought I'd make it this far. So, it's a bit fast and loose this week, because I really haven't had any time to get any notes together properly or even write the script. So I do apologise in advance for any randomness or burbling or uh, mm, in between what the things I'm saying. A bit like that. So, thanks for joining me, Ben Bowers. Hello, how are you doing? As I attempt to watch nearly 1,080s movies in an effort to find out if that decade was really as good as we all think it was. I've collated my list from the Wikipedia page for 1980s in film and the 80s movies website Fast Rewind. That's www.fast-rewind.com. I'll try to find out not only who was involved, but what else they've done and how they're getting on nowadays. There'll be some review notes looking at the film as objectively as possible, but bear in mind I live in the UK and it's 30 years later. And if you're lucky, there may even be some secret bonus content featuring music from or at least linked to the film in question. So if you've got any recommendations for more obscure 80s films that don't appear on those two lists and you'd like to hear me rattle on about and you think I'd like, you can email me on emem at hotmail.co.uk. That's E-E-M-E-M. Or get hold of me on Twitter using at every 80s movie. That's at every 80s movie. Or simply hashtag. Yeah, I'm not sure how you spell that. So, on with episode 5. Are you ready? Then let's go, 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 go! Come on, Doe! Released in 1985, with a budget estimated at $10 million, Commando grossed $7.7 million on its opening weekend alone, towards a total US box office of $35 million, with a worldwide box office of $57 million, the seventh top-grossing film in the world that year. Mark L. Lester, born in 1946. So, the best way for me to describe Mark L. Lester is to give you some choice quotes from his IMDb bio page. Director, writer and producer Mark L. Lester has created high action films throughout his career. Not sure what high action films are, including some of the world's biggest box office draws. Oh, alright, that sounds impressive. His directorial expertise has garnered praise for such films as Arnold Schwarzenegger's box office mega-hit Commando. Fair enough. Stephen King's supernatural thriller Firestarter in 1984 with Drew Barrymore and Martin Sheen. Uh, yeah. Showdown in Little Tokyo, starring Dolph Lundgren and the late Brandon Lee in his first major role. No, it wasn't that good. And two frighteningly prophetic films about the state of society. Class of 1984, made in 1982 with Michael J. Fox in his first film role. Yeah, alright, okay. And the sequel, Class of 1999, made in 1990. Uh, well, that's slightly confusing me with all the numbers, and the films aren't that great. 
In addition to receiving international critical acclaim, Mark L. Lester's films are box office hits. Is that a fact? Commando was an international success story, grossing over $120 million. Really? Oh. Well, I suppose if you count DVD sales and all that lot, yeah, alright, maybe. And Class of 1984 was a number one box office draw. You sure about that? And how much did it make? When did it come out, exactly? Hmm? It became the top grossing film in many major markets around the world. Really? You sure about that? What markets were they? Azerbaijan and Papua New Guinea? Mark's level of experience and relationships within the film industry are a valuable commodity. He's a talented director and a seasoned filmmaker, financier and producer. Really? Who's bloody writing this? Who did this? IMDB mini biography by Jason L. Lester. Oh, hang on a fucking second. Wait a minute. Jason L. Lester, son of Mark L. Lester. Well, there you fucking go. Supposed auteur's last big movie was the aforementioned showdown in Little Tokyo, which was back in the day. His last movie that he's got credited as director is a film that's due out next year, in 2014, called, wait for it, Poseidon Rex. Something to do with ships and dinosaurs, I'm guessing. He's done a lot of work as a producer as well, but in 2011 to 2012, he did four films on the trot, the titles of which pretty much sum up his entire body of work. Jabberwock, Sand Sharks, Dragon Wasps, and Jurassic Attack. The stars. Arnold Schwarzenegger, born in 1947. He was... Uh, really? I mean, really? Come on, guys, it's Arnie, for fuck's sake. Do I really need to explain who he is and what he's done? Yeah, exactly. Well, all right, here's ten things you might not know about Arnold. Number one, he was actually a contestant on The Dating Game in 1973. Number two, he was actually supposed to play Kyle Reese in The Terminator, but after he shared his thoughts about how The Terminator should be portrayed to James Cameron during a meeting, Cameron turned around and convinced him to play in the title role, even though Arnold didn't actually want to play a bad guy. Number three, his voice was dubbed in 1969's Hercules in New York, which was his first professional film credit and in which nobody could understand what he was saying. He was actually credited as Arnold Strong to avoid dumbass, tongue-tied moviegoers. Number four, he went AWOL while serving in the Austrian army, but only so he could compete in his first bodybuilding competition, the Junior Mr. Europe in Stuttgart, and as such, spent a week in jail upon his return. Number five, his directorial debut, believe it or not, was an episode of Tales from the Crypt. It was a season two episode titled The Switch, which starred Kelly Preston, who, coincidentally, featured in last episode, All About Secret Admirer. Number six, he was the second actor to be elected governor of California. The first was one Ronald Reagan, who would later be elected president. Number seven, he almost played Dr. Manhattan in the Watchmen movie. Number eight, he made his American TV debut alongside Lucille Ball. He played muscly masseuse Rico on one of the I Love Lucy stars popular TV specials, Happy Anniversary and Goodbye. Number nine, he was the original choice to play the Incredible Hulk in the TV series. Makes sense. Despite towering at six foot two, he was still deemed too short for the role, which went to a fellow bodybuilder, Lou Ferrigno. And finally, number 10, while in office, he didn't take a salary as governor of California he didn't accept his annual $175,000 paycheck while serving. Fair enough, but he probably had a bob or two spare anyway. There. Now your life is complete. Ray Dawn Chong, who was born in 1961, plays Cindy, the pretty fucking annoying air stewardess who unwittingly becomes Matrix's sidekick. Chong was born in Alberta, Canada, the daughter of Maxine Sneed and infamous marijuana-smoking comedian-stroke actor Tommy Chung. Chong's father is Chinese, and Ray Dawn's mother is of Afro-Canadian and Cherokee descent, so safe to say she's a pretty much a Heinz 57 of a woman. Her sister Robbie is also a model and an actress. She's known for appearing in films such as Quest for Fire in 1981, in which she won a Genie Award for Best Performance by an Actress for a Leading Role, The Colour Purple in 1985, Choose Me in 84, Beat Street the same year, Commando, Cheech and Chong's The Corsican Brothers in 1984, and Far Out Man in the latter two appearing with her father. Chong also saw her most active period in films during the 80s and 90s, and she continues working in TV and film up to this point. She played the love interest in Mick Jagger's video Just Another Night. She's been married twice and has one son. Her second husband was actor C. Thomas Howell, her co-star in the feature film Soul Man, and yet another link to the previous episode, as C.T. was star of Secret Admirer. Jesus, it's a small fucking world, isn't it? They divorced, unfortunately, in 1990. 
Dan Hedaya, born in 1940, plays the evil dictator Arius, along with a fucking terrible South American accent. He also played Mel Horowitz, who was the father of Cher, Alicia Silverstone's character in the 1995 film Clueless, and played Julian Marty in the first Coen Brothers feature film, 1984's Blood Simple. His physical similarity to Richard Nixon, such as having a chin that looks like a bum, led to him being cast as the former president for the 1999 comedy film Dick. Nah, <laughs> Dick. Alongside a successful career in the movies, Hadea has held several TV roles, including Carla Tortelli's ex-husband Nick on the sitcom Cheers from 1984 to 1993. He also starred in its short-lived spin-off in 1987, The Tortellis. He played the estranged father of Mallory Keaton's boyfriend Nick on the sitcom Family Ties in 88 and 89. And he also guest starred in 1997 and 2005 as a wisecracking lawyer on the classic medical drama ER. Vernon George Wells, born in 1945, plays Bennett, the psycho bad guy and the opposite of Matrix. He's an Australian film and TV actor who's built his career around action movies, most often cast as the villain. He began appearing on Aussie TV shows in the mid-1970s, such as Homicide, Matlock Police and All the Rivers Run. He's best known to international audiences for his role of Wes in the 1981 sci-fi action film Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. After that, he began appearing in more Hollywood films such as Commando and the sci-fi comedy Inner Space in 1987. In the noughties, Wells acted in the TV series Power Rangers Time Force, portraying the series' main villain Rancic, a mutant crime lord from the year 3000 who travels back in time to take over the world. In 2002, he reprised that role for the Power Rangers Wild Force Time Force two-part team-up episode titled Reinforcements from the Future. He also starred in the fantastically titled 2011 horror film Silent Night, Zombie Night and appears in 2012's Jurassic Attack, executively produced by one Mark L. Lester. And he also did the voice for Samael in the brilliant video games Darksiders and Darksiders 2. If you've got any interest in video games at all, I implore you to pick them up. Alyssa Milano was born in 1972 and she plays Jenny, Matrix's daughter. She comes from an Italian-American family. Her mother, Lynn Milano, is a fashion designer, and her father, Thomas, is a music film editor. Alyssa was born in a working-class neighbourhood in Brooklyn and grew up in a modest house on Staten Island. One day, her babysitter, who was an aspiring dancer, dragged Alyssa along to an open audition for the first national tour of Annie. And it was Alyssa, not the babysitter, who was chosen from the 1,500 other girls for the role. So, at the tender age of seven, with a mother in tow, Alyssa joined the tour as July, one of the orphans. After 18 months on the road, Alyssa, who'd begun to garner a reputation as an energetic and charismatic young actress, left Annie to be featured in off-Broadway productions and TV commercials. Then, in 1983, when she was aged 10, she landed a breakthrough role on the sitcom Who's the Boss? in 1984 as Tony Danza's saccharine sweet daughter, Samantha Michelli, a kid whose native Brooklyn accent rivaled her TV dads. In order for Alyssa to accept the gig, the Milano family had to uproot and move 3,000 miles to live in Hollywood. She appeared in the hyper-violent and R-rated action film Commando at the age of only 12 and admitted that she was sometimes freaked out by the weapons on set. Bizarrely, a few years later, the film was shown in Japan, prompting a music producer to offer Milano a five-album record deal. And the albums, which she describes as bubblegum pop, like there's any other type of music in Japan, scored platinum in the country, though she later in life admitted she was discontented with its quality. When her role on Who's the Boss ended in 1992, she feared having trouble obtaining other roles, aware of the fate of many grown-up child stars in that period. So, she auditioned for nearly every film role in that age bracket, including B-movies, and finally tried to shed her nice girl image by appearing nude in several erotic films. I'm not giving you the titles, you can find them for yourself, you dirty bastard. Hugo Poole, released in 1997, was her first film released through cinemas since Commando. Despite the milestone, she was soon out of work again, and after a period of six months, she decided to return to TV. She portrayed bad girl Jennifer Mancini on Melrose Place from 1997 to 1998, Meg Winston in Spin City in the same year, and most notably gained the role of Phoebe Halliwell on the eight-year run of the popular hit TV series Charmed, which my wife bizarrely loves. From 1998 to 2006, she also became a producer at the start of season five. She's also dyslexic. <laughs> dyslexic. She can't spell it, I can't say it. Milano is also a fan of the LA Dodgers and writes a regular baseball blog on the MLB website. In 2007, she launched a signature touchline of Team Apparel for female baseball fans, selling it through the blog and the MLB website. She dated actor Corey Haim, who also appeared in Secret Admirer, which was in the last episode, from 1987 to 1990. And she was engaged to Scott Wolf in 1993, but they separated after a year and a half. 
Bill Duke, who's born in 1943, plays the bad guy Cook, a motherfucker not to be messed with. He also appeared with Arnie in Predator and gained immortality on the internet after a meme showed the memorable sequence when he shaves and breaks the razor off on his cheek. He also played Carl Weathers' angry police chief in the classically titled 1988 actioner Action Jackson. He then turned to directing, debuting with A Rage in Harlem in 1991. He also directed the highly respected Deep Cover with Lawrence Fishburne in 1992 and then followed that up with Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, the following year. Yes, really, Sister Act 2. And his last big acting role was as Trask in 2006's X-Men, The Last Stand. You know what? This podcast isn't exciting enough, so let's have a bit of this. Okay, and back to normality. The story for uh, Commando is credited to three people. The screenplay is credited purely to the last person I'll talk about. But firstly, Joseph Jeff Loeb III, born in 1958. He's a film and TV writer, producer, and an award-winning comic book writer as well. He was producer and writer on the TV series Smallville and Lost, writer for Commando and Teen Wolf, and was a writer and co-exec producer on the NBC TV show Heroes from its premiere in 2006 to November 2008. In 2010, he became head of television for Marvel, in charge of drama, comedy and animation. He's a four-time Eisner Award winner and five-time Wizard Fan Awards winner. His comic book work, which has appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, includes work on many major characters, including Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, Hulk, Captain America, Cable, Iron Man, Daredevil, Supergirl, The Avengers, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, much of which he's produced in collaboration with artist Tim Sale. Matthew Wiseman was born in... I don't know, because I can't find that much detail about him. He did co-write Teen Wolf with Jeff Loeb in 1985. He wrote the first episode of the TV series in 2011 and stayed on as creative consultant. Apart from that, can't find anything else. Story and screenplay credit go to one Stephen E. DeSouza, DeSouza, however you want to pronounce it, who was born in 1947. He's written extensively for TV and films. On TV, such series as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman and Knight Rider, as well as The Powers of Matthew Starr and Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, the latter two of which he also created. He was also responsible for several of the most successful films of the 80s, including Commando, 48 Hours in 1982, The Running Man in 87, Die Hard in 88, and Die Hard 2 in 1990. Safe to say, he knows how to write an action script. De Souza, De Souza, whatever you want to pronounce him, kind of slipped a bit in quality though, because he later scripted Beverly Hills Cop 3 in 1994, Judge Dredd in 1995, and Lara Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life in 2003. And he also produced and directed a number of films and TV shows. It didn't really carry on the quality, as it included Street Fighter in 1984, which he also wrote, and the TV movie Possessed in 2000. Almost understandably, he was quite quiet between 2004 and 2008, until the TV movie You Gotta Catch Santa Claus and three years on the TV series Unknown Sender. Perhaps he went across to go and find out how to write a decent script again. He's been nominated twice for an Edgar Allan Poe Award, an award given to any piece of media for excellence in mystery writing. The first was in 1984 for 48 Hours, and the second was in 1989 for Die Hard. D'Souza, however you want to pronounce it, also won a Razzie Award in 1991, when the much maligned and unfairly criticised Hudson Hawk garnered enough hatred for it to be dubbed worst screenplay. It's a bit harsh. Two garbage collectors gun down a man with mini-Uzis in the middle of the street. One of the two later steals a car from a dealership and crushes the dealer to death. A tugboat is mysteriously blown up in a harbour. Boom! These murders all have one thing in common. All involve former members of a commando team, led by John Matrix, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, a hulking ex-colonel whose exploits have made him and his men enemies among totalitarian empires and groups around the world. Matrix and his daughter Jenny, played by Alyssa Milano, live alone in the mountains of upstate California. But Matrix's former commanding officer, Major General Franklin Kirby, played by James Olsen, flies to the house to tell Matrix about the killings of his previous men and to leave two expert soldiers, yeah right, to guard him as Kirby and the feds work out to find the killers. But no sooner does Kirby leave than a massive gunman open fire on the house, killing the two soldiers. Jenny runs and hides in a bedroom while Matrix rushes to his shed, which is actually an underground weapons bunker, to get a rifle. Now armed, he confronts a gunman who's sitting in a bedroom and offers him a choice. Do as they say, and his daughter, who's now being taken away in one of several fleeing vehicles, will live. But Matrix shoots him dead, and despite finding his truck sabotaged, he goes after the gunmen by driving the powerless truck down the steep mountain, 
intercepting one of the fleeing vehicles and attacking four armed thugs, beating two of them senseless before being beaten down himself. Waking up later, he's then confronted by the gunmen's leader, Bennett, played by Vernon Wells, who it had been thought was killed in the tugboat explosion. But Bennett, however, is the one behind the killings and faked his own death to smoke out Kirby and Matrix, wanting revenge after being discharged by Matrix from the army for massacring civilians in a South American nation called Valverde, whose Marxist dictator, Arius, played by Dan Hadea, was overthrown by Matrix's team, and who is now Bennett's employer. Matrix is forced onto an airplane, flying to Valverde to gain the trust, but ultimately kill its new leader. But Matrix escapes after he murders the thug travelling with him and jumping from one of the plane's wheels as it takes off. He's then forced to get the assistance of Cindy, played by Ray Dawn Chong, an off-duty stewardess, after one of Arius's men, Sully, played by David Patrick Kelly, tries to hit on her. Matrix and Cindy track down Sully, and after a violent brawl at a shopping mall and a chase up the Hollywood Hills, he apprehends Sully and holds him over a steep cliff, demanding information on Jenny's whereabouts. Sully is due to meet his partner, Cook, played by Bill Duke, at a motel. So Matrix, not having any more use for Sully, drops him to his death, but only after saying something which nobody can ever remember and nobody ever quotes. Matrix confronts Cook at the motel and a brawl erupts that spills into the next room, surprising a very amorous couple in the middle of some jiggy-jiggy. The couple watch in horror as Matrix kills Cook, then finds information in his pocket in his car that leads to a warehouse showing an island where they believe Jenny's being held. Matrix and Cindy raid a weapons store to do some shopping in preparation, but Matrix must be rescued when he's captured by police. Cindy pulls this off with a rocket launcher when she figures out how to use it by reading the instruction manual. Fuck Rambo. Oh, no, sorry, that's the wrong film. Matrix and Cindy hijack a seaplane and fly to the island, where he arms himself like a fucking loon and sneaks into Eris's fortress. Well, when I say sneak, I actually mean that there's 20 minutes of this. And this... And a bit of that. In the chaos, Jenny manages to escape the room that she's trapped in, but she's then caught by Bennett in the boiler room of the main mansion. Matrix succeeds in killing Arius, but then must taunt Bennett into freeing Jenny by appealing to his steroid-induced egomania and rage into a mano-a-mano face-off. Then there's about five minutes of this. And a little bit of this. Before Matrix throws a gigantic steel pipe through Bennett's chest, pinning him to a steam tank and killing him. End credits roll, and every male in the audience walks out and punches something. So, having enjoyed 10 things you might not know about Arnie, here's 10 things you might not know about the movie Commando. Number one. Story writer Jeff Loeb stated that the film was originally conceived as a vehicle for Gene Simmons. Yes, Gene Simmons, lead singer of Kiss, who passed on it and later scripted with Nick Nolte in mind to play the lead as an out-of-condition former commando struggling with the demands of his mission. Walter Hill, of 48 Hours fame, was originally involved in the development process. Number two, the original concept was for an Israeli-based Special Forces Mossad agent who's sick of the continual death and destruction in the Middle East. So he quits Israel and emigrates to the US, where he's forced out of his self-imposed retirement after the kidnapping of his daughter. Naturally, this was modified and adapted when Schwarzenegger was cast, but some of the original dialogue can be heard in the deleted scenes when Matrix says he regrets his past actions. Number three, Diamond Toymakers released a line of commando action figures in 1986 in an attempt to cash in on the success of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, and the film itself. Matrix now leads an elite special forces unit, which replaced his old deceased unit from the original film, called C-Team, made up of Specs, Blaster and Chopper. <laughs> Chopper. <laughs> Against the forces of fear, led by Psycho, who's based on Bennett, and consisting of Leadhead, Stalker and Sawbones. Yeah, really classy guys. Number four, the shopping mall, the Sherman Oak Galleria, is also used in Terminator 2, also starring Arnie. But the mall's been remodelled and you can't actually go and see where the various bits were shot. Number five. The mansion used in the final shootout between Matrix and Aeris's men, the former Harold Lloyd estate in Beverly Hills, is the same mansion seen in the final shootout between Axel Foley and Victor Maitland in 1984's Beverly Hills Cop. Number six. Patria Industries, the owner of the industrial site that Matrix and Cindy break into, really exists. 
It's a company from Finland which produces armor modular vehicles, mortar systems and helicopters for military purposes. Number seven, director Mark Lester initially wanted Raoul Julia for the role of Arius, but producer Joel Silver rather stupidly insisted on casting Dan Hadea. Number eight, the introduction to Matrix as he comes out the forest with close-ups on his boots and chest and biceps, etc., was supposedly shot and edited in a similar fashion as Lenny Riefenstahl's Nazi propaganda movies. According to Lester, this was done to represent the notion of the invincible man of the earth emerging from the forest. No offence, Lester, but bullshit! You did it because it looked cool. Fair enough, it does, but don't try and make it sound more clever than it is. Number nine, John McTiernan was offered the chance to direct this film and turned it down. Later, while editing Nomads, which was his feature debut, he was then offered the chance to direct Arnie again in his second film for 20th Century Fox titled Predator, which he accepted and was a good move all round. And finally, number 10, in 1986, a sequel to Commando was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, this Houser, however you want to pronounce it, and it was revised by Frank Darabon, who wrote and directed The Shawshank Redemption, with an eye to having John McTiernan direct. The script was based on a 1979 book titled Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, but Arnie wasn't really that interested in reprising the role. So the script was reworked with a new central character, whose name was one John McLean, eventually played by one Bruce Willis, and became eventually one ultimate action movie, Die Hard. Come on! So here's some thoughts I jotted down while I was watching the movie Commando. Number one, and I'd like to discuss the very opening of the film, because I'm quite interested how the conversation went while they were planning the assassination. All right, gentlemen, our mission is to kill Matrix and his men. For the first assassination, we need to get hold of a refuse collection vehicle. Er, sir? Yes, Jones? Er, where do we get a garbage truck from? I don't care, Jones. Just get your hands on one. Er, well, sir, they're not exactly inconspicuous, are they? And if I steal one, well, they're pretty easy to trace. It's not like you can hide it in a bush. I don't give a shit, Jones. Just get your hands on a goddamn garbage truck. Er, okay, sir. Right. So we're going to get that garbage truck, and we're going to drive it right up the guy's street. Er, sir. Yes, Jones. Er, what if it's collection day? Well, we need to collect the other bins. Ah, that's the genius part. We'll drive up on a different day. He'll wake up, wonder what's going on. He'll come outside, and we'll blow the motherfucker away. Er, uh, but sir... What? What if he doesn't wake up? Truck came past my house the other week, and I was still asleep. So my bins are overflowing now. Well, we'll just have to make sure we make enough noise to wake him up, huh? Er, uh, okay, sir. Uh, but he's married, isn't he? Yeah, what of it, Jones? Well, won't we wake his wife up as well? What if she comes down? What year do you think this is, Jones? 2013? Men do all the hard work round here. She's just gonna stay in bed, lazy bitch. Oh, but, uh, won't we wake the neighbours up as well? What if they come outside wondering why the bin truck's here? Ah, uh, they won't. They'll all still be asleep. Oh, but, but if we're blowing him away, won't the gunfire wake the neighbours up? Should we use silences? No, it'll be fine. It definitely won't wake the neighbours up. We'll have gone by the time they find the body. Um, sir? Yes, Jones? We're in a garbage truck, sir. What of it, Jones? Um, well, they're not very fast, sir. It'll be fine. Okay, sir. Just thought it might be better, you know, if one of us pretended to be a delivery guy and shot him on his doorstep with a silencer. You know, rather than gunning him down in the middle of the street while driving a garbage truck. God damn it, Jones, will you stop questioning my authority? This plan is goddamn foolproof. Okay, sir. Now, for the next assassination, I need one of you to volunteer to drive a car out of a dealership while running over the target. Just drive off. I'm sure he'll be dead. You don't need to worry about checking him. Number two. First time we meet John Matrix, he's walking down a hill, carrying a tree trunk in one arm and a chainsaw in the other hand. To be honest, I think he's just carrying the chainsaw for effect, because I'm sure he just ripped that tree trunk out with his bare goddamn hands. Number three. I really love the bit when uh, Arnie pushes the car downhill because the engine's been ripped out, but he's still chasing after him. It's about the only clever bit in the movie. Um, that kind of shows the improvisational adaptability of Matrix as a character and is quite a cool action sequence as well. Number four, John Matrix is a stupid fucking name. I mean, really, John Matrix. Who the fuck names their kid John? Number five, and it's yet another film where Arnie says, I'll be back, uh, was a proper catchphrase for him, but I didn't realise just how many films he says I'll be back in. Uh, and I'm now trying to think of ones where he doesn't, and I can't. Probably because it doesn't exist. Number six. Matrix's escape from the airplane, while pretty cool, 
and fucking stupid at the same time relies on so many coincidences for him to be able to do it, it's untrue. They're sat with the bulkhead behind them so that there isn't any passengers behind when he kills the guy. There's clearly nobody on the aisle opposite or even in a row there because you would see that if the bloke to your left suddenly smacks him in the face and breaks his neck. The stewardesses must be the dumbest on earth because of the fact that A, when he gets up as they're about to take off, he simply says, I'm airsick and holds his stomach in a way that isn't airsick. She lets him go. They're on the ground. They haven't even taken off yet. You can't be airsick on the ground, you numpty. And then the fact that the stewardesses on a 10-hour flight don't remember that there was a bloke sat in that chair next to that bloke that was asleep. I'm sure that was the case. Oh, well, never mind. We'll just carry on anyway. Oh, look, we've just landed and the guy's dead. I mean, seriously? Number seven. Tell you what, it's fucking lucky there's a swamp at the end of that runway, isn't it? Would have been a different story altogether if it was either hard concrete, a forest or a housing estate. Number eight. Dan Hedaya's accent is fucking terrible. And you can gather this within 30 seconds of him speaking. Just listen to this. Colonel's Matrix, you do not understand a country like Valverde. Uh, a country like where? Valverde. Where? Valverde. Honestly, I had no idea what Dan Hedaya was trying to say there. And I had to look it up on Google to find out what the country was supposed to be called. Because I thought it was Balbeardy or something like that. Fucking awful. Number nine. And Ray Dawn Chong is ridiculously cocky after only five minutes of being kidnapped. Uh, it's Arnie. Alright? Show some fucking respect. Alright? Number ten. Now, Arnie is not a particularly good actor. Never has been. And I'm not even going to pretend that he's got any skills. Particularly at this stage of his career. But... He has got a fantastic face and he can give certain looks and look mean and look angry and it just works really well. You know, I can really understand why he became such a big star. Sure, give him words to read out and he's crap, but make him look mean, make him look angry, make him turn to the side and look at somebody as though he's going to kick the shit out of them. And by Christ, is he awesome. Number 11. And it's a really, really impressive lift stunt in the shopping mall sequence. Um, I was surprised. I'd completely forgotten about it, and I was uh, surprised just how good it was. Uh, it's up there with some of the Jackie Chan stunts from Police Story. Really well done. Timing's done to perfection. Uh, and the guy even looks a bit like Arnie, so it's um, it's even more impressive. Um, yeah, high point of the film for me. Really good. Number 12. Arnie and Radon Chong sneak quietly into the factory filled with weapons and bad guys. They're sneaking around. They're really quiet. And then five minutes later, he drives a digger into a surplus store in order to go shopping. Uh, slight overkill, mate. Number 13. And Bennett and Arius are being very cautious to make sure that um, Arnie's got on the plane uh, and is on his way to Valverde. Sally goes with him, goes with Enrico, who gets killed on the plane. Sally watches the plane take off. Mrs. Matrix jumping off at the end, but we'll forgive him that. And then they wait for a phone call when the plane's landed from the bad guys who are meeting him at Valverde. But wouldn't it also be wise for Bennett or Arius to check in with Sully every now and again? Because if they find out that he's dead and he's not answering his phone, then they know that there's a problem. I can forgive not ringing the airplane because back in the days, I don't think planes had phones on. Or at least if they did, it wouldn't be standard technology. But yeah, give Sully a ring every hour. Make sure he's still all right. Make sure he's not being chucked off a cliff and Arnie's coming for you, motherfuckers. You're in deep shit now. Number 14. And Bill Paxton appears in a very early film role as a complete fucking idiot. He plays a Coast Guard guy. And when they're in the seaplane on the way to the island to go and kick the shit out of Arius, Bill Paxton is calling them, telling them that they're entering restricted airspace and they must turn around now. Cindy drops the plane to as low as it can go and they disappear off the radar. Paxton sits there going, oh, they've disappeared. Well, you were talking to them. Keep trying to talk to them. And if you were talking to them and they were answering back, then they're probably still there, you doofus. Number 15. And there is a huge debate as to whether Bennett is gay, which is understandable given the clothes that he wears. It's kind of leather chaps and chainmail, and he's got that big gay bear moustache. But to be perfectly honest, I don't really give a shit. You know, it's a character in a movie. It's like these Top Gun conversations. Oh, it's a gay parody. Uh, I don't care. It's a movie. Just get over yourselves. But he does look incredibly gay. Number 16. Short but sweet, and I've said this before, but Dan Hedaya's chin looks like an arse. 
number 17 and I've got this crystal clear recollection of watching Commando seeing a building explode and these cardboard cutouts of soldiers just fall on the floor but when I was watching it this time and to be honest looking for it didn't happen there was these crash test dummies that appeared to be nailed to a post that was then stuck in the floor military uniform put on them and then the building explodes right in front of them and they just kind of rattle about in the wind which to be honest looked even more stupid Number 18, watch all the soldiers getting killed by Arnie closely and you can quite clearly see a few of the actors of the same people getting killed over and over again. Understandable because they probably couldn't afford the 3 million individual people needed that Arnie kills at the end. However, there was one really quick shot of a guy firing an assault rifle and it looked exactly the same as Bill Murray's character Carl Spackley in Caddyshack. I just love the thought of him trying to face off against Arnie and having no chance. Number 19, and Arnie gets nearly hit by a grenade and crawls into a tool shed to take his top off and show off his muscles because he's clearly in pain. Soldiers surround the shed and shoot the place up, but clever Arnie's hiding in the roof. So when a soldier opens the door to check the body, Arnie swings down and embeds, I think it was a rake, into the guy's stomach. Then he throws two circular saw blades, which scout one guy and embed themselves in the neck of another. Presumably the guy's head was really, really soft, or the other soldier's neck was incredibly hard. But think about the shape of a circular saw blade, all pointy around the edge. Now think about how you'd throw something like a frisbee, for example. How exactly do you throw a circular saw blade with enough force to embed itself in the neck of one guy and scalp another without cutting all of your fingers off? I just don't think it can happen. Number 20. And Arnie could have made the whole ending sequence a lot easier for himself if he'd just moved forward a bit and hit the checkpoint to stop all the enemies respawning. Because let's face it, it is just a fucking video game. And finally, number 21, and this is the only film I've ever seen, or can indeed think of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, where the bad guy, in the punch-out at the end, gets pretty majorly electrocuted, and then carries on fighting. Normally, that's the cue for them to die, but no, he gets electrocuted, he screams out in pain like a girl, and then carries on going. That is my verdict. For the first time in this series, we have a remake and a sequel. Well, sort of. See, in 2008, there was a Russian remake titled Day-Di, or, or Dendi, or equivalents of, of either. Uh, it was produced and directed by a guy called Mikhail Porochenkov, who also stars as the equivalent of Matrix. It's practically shot for shot, uh, and it makes Arnie's acting look fucking incredible. And Bennett's no longer a camp gay icon, instead he's a sweaty, fat bastard. Uh, there is a trailer, there's a couple of comparisons between the original movie and the remake on YouTube, but I still haven't found the whole thing in one go. I'd be interested in seeing it, at the same time, I'm not sure I want to. And in 2010, it was announced that Fox would begin filming a remake of Commando, with David Ayer directing. He wrote 2000's U571 and 2001's Fast and the Furious, and he also directed 2008's Street Kings and 2012's highly respected End of Watch. Sam Worthington was in negotiations with Avatar and Terminator Salvation fame to star as the new lead role, which reportedly had a more realistic approach, whatever the hell that means. Everything has gone quiet since then, so we can assume it's probably on the back burner. Look, a direct remake of it would never work because there's just too many parodies of it. It's technically a parody itself. I do quite like the time limit structure on it, the fact that he's got a limited amount of time to get to the place to rescue his daughter, and a more serious take on that probably would be quite interesting. But then, if people wanted to see the Commando remake, I don't think they're the type of people that would be interested in a more serious version. Sound clips. Sound clips, and to be perfectly honest, I probably could just stream the entire movie, it's so chock full of one-liners. But I've got to try and limit some time. So, first one is uh, silent and smooth. And clearly, General Kirby has the major hots for Arnie. John, are you in there? John, come on out. It's Kirby. I know. Silent and smooth, just like always. You better be. You taught me. I'm getting a little rusty. But not rusty enough to give you a hug and a kiss, Matrix, you big hunk of man, you. Next, and an important reason why you should probably tell the truth to your children, just in case it all goes tits up. Is it bad? I'm not leaving you, if that's what you mean. Then it can't be bad. 
listen, you can't wrap your kids up in cotton wool. You've got to tell them the truth. You've got to be honest with them. You've got to make them see that sometimes things go wrong, which means it won't be so much of a shock when people start shooting the house up, not 30 seconds later. Next, an apparently special forces training turns you into a dog. How bad are you hit? I can make it. I'll be all right. I've got to get my rifle from the shed. Keep an eye out. They'll be coming. Remember, you're downwind. The air current may tip them off. Downwind? You think I could smell them coming? I did. One of them must have farted or something. Next. Well, I'm not even going to explain this one. Your daughter's safe, Colonel. Whether she stays that way is up to you. My people got some business with you. And if you want your kid back, then you gotta cooperate. Right? Wrong. Yeah, you like that one? Uh, yeah, have another. Well, have a nice trip, huh? Take care. Oh, here. Have some beers in Valverde Matrix. It'll give everyone a little more time with your daughter. You're a funny guy, Sally. I like you. That's why I'm going to kill you last. Ooh, what about this one? Any carry-on luggage? Just him. Yeah, all right. That one's not quite as good. Well, try this one on for size, then. Excuse me. How long is the flight? We land in Valverde in exactly 11 hours. Thank you. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Fucking hell. Well, enough of the one-liners for a bit. Here's one from Ray Dawn Chong, which was actually quite a good point. Don't move. I'm not going to hurt you. Step aside. You said don't move. Ah, she's got you there, Arnie. Ah, didn't think about that one, did you? In your face. Right, next is uh, a fucking stupid sound effect to denote the countdown on Arnie's watch. Doesn't appear any other time he looks at it. It's completely unnecessary. Can you imagine if your watch did that 24 hours a day? Jesus, it would drive you fucking nuts. So, here's a security guard at the mall, giving a pretty accurate description of Arnie. And judging by the delivery of his line, it's safe to say he's not a white guy. Attention all units. Emergency on a theater level. Suspect, six foot two, brown hair. He's one gigantic motherfucker. Absolutely love that delivery. It's brilliant. Oh, it's fantastic, that. Uh, right, next, annoying Ray Dawn Chong. To be honest, Arnie's got a lot more self-control in this scene than I do because I would have probably kicked her out of the car. You know what? There's too much talking in that last clip, so let's have another one-liner. You might have heard this one before. I have to remind you, Sally. This is my week off. Uh, you can't kill me, Matrix. You need me to find your daughter. Where is she? I don't know. My cook knows. I'll take you where I'm supposed to meet her. But you won't. Why not? Because I already know. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's right, Matrix. You did. I lied. Again. Next, and a line which makes me confused as to which I prefer, Happy Gilmore or this one for the I ate X for breakfast. You scared, motherfucker? Well, you should be, because this green beret's going to kick your big ass. I ate green berets for breakfast. And right now I'm very hungry. You want to get yourself an extra Weetabix in the morning, Arnie, old chap. Next, and I've mentioned before that I really love it when people say the word asshole in movies. 
So when I get them twice, including a couple of fuck yous within 30 seconds, I'm as happy as a clam. However happy clams are. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. <coughs> Sounded like he punched Cindy then. He didn't. Although, I probably would have done. No, instead, a bit later on in the film, he then turns around and tells her to get her arse in gear. Oh, shit. Oh, no. What's wrong? This isn't a plane. This is a canoe with wings. Well, then get in and start paddling. Yeah, Cindy, for God's sake, do something useful, will you? Jesus, moaning all the time. Next, General Kirby fawning over Matrix again. Matrix? Call the Federal Building. Have a monitor every police, aviation, and marine channel in the area. What are you expecting? World War Three. Wait, that surplus store was selling tactical nuclear weapons? Jesus. Next, ask a silly question, get a silly answer. Now you remember the message. Commando, Kirby, Code Red, coordinates, got it. Don't break radio silence until they see me. How will I know? Because all fucking hell is going to break loose. That's how my daughter learns the alphabet too. C is for Commando. C is for Code Red. C is for coordinates. C is for Kirby. No, sorry, darling, that's wrong. It's K. Kicking cur for Kirby. Never mind, eh? Next, and it's been discussed as to whether Bennett is actually attracted to Matrix with his gay get-up uh, and he's wanting to penetrate Matrix with a big knife. Um, but it's quite a nice little conversation, this, because at least it sounds like he cares. How's your arm, John? Come over and find out. No, thanks. Well, all right, maybe he doesn't care that much. Anyway, he's just been shot in the arm. It's going to be all bloody and horrible. So they have a big punch up and a cuddle and smack each other with big metal poles and somehow don't break any bones. And it looks like Bennett's going to win. And then he gets electrocuted. And then it looks like he's going to win again. And then he says something and that really pisses Matrix off. John, I feel good. Just like old times. What's it feel like to be a dying man? So anytime somebody tells me something that I don't believe, I'm just going to play them this. Bullshit. And then punch them 15 times in the face really quickly. Well, maybe not that. Hey, here's a bit of trivia for you. Apparently the filmmakers were making Commando as a social commentary on the nature of the American movie system. Do you know what my thoughts on that is? Bullshit. So, having kicked the shit out of Bennett and thrown a pipe through his chest so that steam's coming out the other end, there were then some options of what to say. Apparently, the options were, I hate small talk, which doesn't really make any sense. I think it was too much pressure for you, Bennett. Yeah, not too bad. Or, can't take the pressure, Bennett, huh? Mm, yeah, a little bit clunky. So they ended up going with this. Let off some steam, Bennett. But wait, there's still 30 seconds of film left. We can cram another one-liner in there, can't we? Leave anything for us? Just bodies. Hey! He shoots, he scores. Ah, right. What should we talk about next? The soundtrack. Oh, yeah, right. That's a good idea. So, the soundtrack was composed by one James Horner, who was born in 1953. He began studying piano at the age of five, although even nowadays he still doesn't consider himself a decent pianist, and he trained at the Royal College of Music in London before moving to California in the 1970s. After receiving a bachelor's degree in music at USC, he'd go on to earn his master's degree at UCLA and also teach music theory there. He later completed his PhD in music composition and theory and then began scoring student films for the American Film Institute in the late 70s, which paved the way for scoring assignments on a number of small-scale films. Horner began working for legendary B-film director and producer Roger Corman, with his first composer credit for Corman's big-budget Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. His work steadily came noticed in Hollywood, which led him to take on larger projects. Horner made a breakthrough in 82, when he had the chance to score for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, establishing himself as a mainstream Hollywood composer. Horner continued composing music for high-profile releases during the 1980s, including... <gasps> 48 Hours in 1982, Krull in 1983, Star Trek III, The Search of Spock in 1984, Commando 1985, Cocoon in 1985 as well, Aliens in 1986, Batteries Not Included in 1987, Willow in 1988, and Glory and the beautiful, beautiful soundtrack for Field of Dreams, both in 1989. Aliens earned Horner his first Academy Award nomination, and he's been nominated an additional nine times since. 
the climax of the track Bishop's Countdown from his score for Aliens ranks fifth in the most commonly used soundtrack used for film trailers. Also, a fragment from Aliens was featured when Carl shows up at the end of 1988's Die Hard. You know the bit when he suddenly arrives and he's and he's got the big machine gun and Al Powell shoots him? Yeah, that bit's from Aliens. The music, not the actual bit of the film. Throughout the late 80s and early 90s, Hornerosa wrote orchestral scores for children's films, particularly those produced by Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, with credits for An American Tale in 1986, The Land Before Time in 1988, An American Tale 2, Five Goes West in 1991, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story in 1993, and Casper, and Balto, all from 1995. He also composed the theme for the Universal Pictures logo from 1990 to 1997. Sounds impressive, but isn't really. 1995 saw Horner produce no fewer than six scores in the same year, including those three kids' ones, and also the commercially successful and critically acclaimed works for Braveheart and Apollo 13, both of which earned him Oscar nominations. Horner's greatest financial and critical success would then come with the score in 1997 for Titanic. The album became the best-selling film soundtrack in history, selling over 27 million copies worldwide. At the 70th Academy Awards, Horner won Oscars for Best Original Dramatic Score and Best Original Song for My Heart Will Go On, which he co-wrote with Will Jennings. In addition, Horner and Jennings won three Grammy Awards and two Golden Globe Awards for the soundtrack and My Fucking Heart Will Fucking Go On and On and Fucking On. Titanic also marked the first time in 10 years that Horner worked with James Cameron, following the highly stressful scoring sessions for Aliens. Horner had declared he'd never work with Cameron again and described the experience of Aliens as a nightmare. Not learning these lessons, however, Horner then joined with Cameron again on 2009's Avatar and spent over two years working solidly on the score. His work on Avatar earned him numerous award nominations, including a 10th Oscar, all of which he lost to Michael Giacchino for Up. Horner then composed the score for the remake of The Karate Kid, which was released in 2010, and the reboot of The Amazing Spider-Man, released in 2012. Like a number of other popular film composers, such as Hans Zimmer, James Newton Howard, Horner's been criticised for transposing hooks, orchestra motifs and larger passages from other scores of his own or even other composers. These accusations are points of fierce debates between his supporters and his detractors. And as for the Commando score, well, like the film itself, it's an absolute mess and it's completely mental. Best way I can describe it is to go through the title track from the soundtrack CD itself. Good start so far. Good 80s, moody, action-y type theme. Liking it. Yeah, the drums are too loud. They're too heavy. It's a proper 80s action score. Could do some horns, though. Just make it even more dramatic. Oh, cheers, James. Thanks for that. It's going alright so far, isn't it? Wait a minute. They sound a bit like steel drums. Steel drums? Now I've seen this film, and it's set in America, and it features a South American dictator. So, I must have fallen asleep during the bit where they all went to the fucking Caribbean. I mean, this is mental. It's an absolute mess. It's like he found a cupboard at the back of the studio, chock full of different instruments, and just went, ah, fuck it. You know what? I'll use the lot. The only way this could get any more bonkers is if he decided to throw a bloody sax solo in there somewhere. Oh no, wait, he fucking did! Changing tone, yeah, liking this. This is suitably moody, not bad. Whoa, wait a minute, where the fuck did this lot come from?
oh right so we're now not watching an arnie action film we've actually gone to disney world and we're in the epcot center what the fuck This is the story of man. This is the story of our past, our present, and our future. This is Epcot Center. Mom? Mom? I'm bored of Spaceship Earth. Can I go and do Mission Space? It's much more fun. And we're back to this crazy shit. I, I, I don't know whether I love this soundtrack. I don't know whether I fucking hate it. I don't know what to think. I don't know what James Horner was thinking. I don't think even he knows what he was thinking. But regardless, it suits the film to an absolute bloody T. It's nuts. You know I said I'd review you last. I lied. It's time to let off some steam, because we have to let episode 5 go. It's dead tired. And so on and so forth. Yeah, sorry about that. So, let's boot up my 80s computer and see what's coming up next. Well, actually, I need to be honest here. The computer sound effects should actually be replaced with a... Or whatever special effect best represents my wife. Probably not because if she hears this I am in deep shit anyway I've had to do a deal in order for her to tolerate me sitting through 80s movies of an evening I've got to throw at least one Christian Slater film in there for her enjoyment she's got a crush on him I have a crush on Laurie Loughlin hey everybody's happy so the next film will be Gleaming the Cube starring well you can probably already guess that released in 1989 judging by the pictures I've seen on the net of it full of skateboards and big pointy hair I've never seen it but neither is my wife, so it'll be a proper date night. Nyah. Remember, if you've any feedback or suggestions, you can get hold of me at emem at hotmail.co.uk or via Twitter on at every80smovie. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye now. Yeah, don't worry, that wasn't going to be your secret bonus content. And considering there's not really a lot else in the movie, I've got no other choice but to give you the rocking song that plays over the end credits. We Fight the Love by The Power Station. It was originally called Somewhere, Somehow, Someone's Gonna Pay, which ended up being the poster tagline. The Power Station was a supergroup originally made up of singer Robert Palmer, former chic drummer Tony Thompson, and Duran Duran members John Taylor on bass and Andy Taylor on guitar. Bernard Edwards, also of Chic, was involved on the studio side as recording producer and for a short time also functioned as the Power Station's manager. The band was formed in New York City late in 1984 during a break in Duran Duran's schedule that became a lengthy hiatus and they were named after the recording studio where their self-titled album was conceived and recorded, which was released in March 1985. It reached number 6 in the US album chart and number 12 in the UK. The group's somewhat unexpected success led to two events in 1985. They decided to headline a summer tour in America with Paul Young, Nick Kershaw and OMD. But Robert Palmer then decided to record a solo album to take advantage of his newfound recognition and fame, which led to him quitting the band, which, unsurprisingly, didn't go down too well. 
with Palmer bowing out at the start of the tour, the band recruited singer-actor Michael Debar, formerly of Silverhead Checkered Past and Detective, for the tour. Debar also performed with them at the Live Aid charity concert in Philadelphia that summer. Debar's friendship with actor Don Johnson led to the band's guest appearance on an episode of Miami Vice. Similarly, his friendship with producer Joel Silver led to the power station writing We Fight for Love for Commando. The band folded late in 1985 as its members turned to other projects. They reunited ten years later with the original members, including Robert Palmer. However, personal issues forced bassist John Taylor to withdraw from the project before the album was ever completed. Bernard Edwards stepped in and completed the album Living in Fear, which was released in 1996 in his stead, and was prepared to tour with the group, but then he tragically died suddenly of pneumonia during a trip to Japan. The group decided to press on, and toured first with bassist Guy Pratt, and then Manny Yanes and second guitarist Luke Morley instead, but only to moderate success. The group disbanded permanently shortly after. We Fight for Love is proper 80s action film end credit music. Rocking guitars, heavy drums, rubbish lyrics. It's utterly shit and actually pretty good all at the same time. Kind of like the movie. So We Fight for Love by The Power Station. Enjoy.
Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll hope you join me in the next episode. End of line.